We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We love adventure. Maybe I should say at least I love adventure. I think we all love adventure, if I could be uh, presumed to speak for all of us. Even those of us who are maybe more drawn to safety and comfort and prefer our adventure just in a book or on a screen. I do think there's something deep within the human heart that longs to be a part of something greater than ourselves, something exciting and meaningful and purposeful. And this is evoked, of course, when we read wonderful stories like Tolkien's The Hobbit um, and so many other things. It's why we're captivated by Lewis and Clark and Ernest Shackleton and Neil Armstrong, just to name a few of so many great adventurers in the past. And I I contend with you this morning that the Christian life in which we know ourselves to be deployed on the mission of God is in fact the greatest adventure that we could ever know or engage as human beings. It's not boring. It's not purposeless. It's not dull. It's not tame. It involves power and opposition discipline, love, and genuine sacrifice. We're going to talk together about the mission of God today. And again, I want to say that to be deployed on this mission is the greatest adventure of all. We are in the midst of looking at four dimensions of the Christian life that arise out of the biblical word that help us when we take them up together to grow into the image of Jesus, to become like Jesus, which is the goal of a Christian disciple, of somebody who has heard the powerful gospel that God proclaims with his power and that transforms our lives and our hearts and makes us new. We then long to become like Jesus, to be made together into his image. And as we take up these four different dimensions of the Christian life, so there's worship, this upward trajectory, community, an inward trajectory, mission, this outward trajectory, and catechesis or instruction, a love of God's word, a deepward trajectory. As we take these things up together, we grow to be more and more like Jesus. We considered worship two weeks ago. We considered community last week on this horizontal axis that's primarily about loving neighbor. So we're considering mission today, the loving of neighbor outside of the body of Christ. Next week, we'll come back and finish the vertical axis, which is a little bit more focused on the love of God. And we'll look at a love of God's word and his gospel as a foundation and anchor for all of our lives. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Today we're going to look at community. And the text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 21, page 966 in the Pew Bible. Three headings as we look at this, the source of mission, the nature of mission, and then we'll spend most of our time on what does this actually mean and do for our lives? How do our lives look when we engage in this together? So first, the source. We can make a mistake when we start to talk about mission in the church, that mission is all about what we are to do. It's about our initiative. We can talk about the mission of the church or the mission to Boston or a mission to the globe. And none of this, by the way, is wrong. 
But there is a potential danger when we speak in this way, because it can obscure the most critical fact of Christian mission, which is this. Mission is God's, and he invites us by his mercy and grace to share with him, to participate with him in his mission. Verse 18, Paul writes, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All this is from God. So verses 14 through 17, I would argue, could be a way that we'd understand what he means by this. And that concludes with a wonderful verse in verse 17, which we'll look at in just a moment. But notice that God is the primary actor here. All this is from God. God is the one who is at work, and he's invited us into this work. Paul says in verse 18, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 20, we are ambassadors, he says. For Christ, God making his appeal through us. God is the primary actor. We are employed and deployed in his mission. Uh, the Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright puts it this way the, in, near the beginning of his book, The Mission of God. Quote, mission then in biblical terms, while it inescapably involves us in planning and action, is not primarily a matter of our activity or initiative. The mission is God's. The marvel is that God invites us to join in, end quote. Which means then the key question of mission is not, what am I to do? The key question of mission is, what is God doing and how can I be a part of it? Or how can I be in it? So that raises the next question, the second part here then in our three-part three structure, the nature of this mission. What is God doing? What is God's mission? And this text in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul paints in broad brushstrokes. As I said, all this is from God. We look back, and where does this end in terms of verse 17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and the Greek is just blunt here, it just goes, new creation or new creature, it could be translated. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's mission is new creation, and this new creation has come through the one who for our sake died and was raised, verse 15, through Jesus. Through him, the old, sinful, in Adam humanity has died with him on the cross, and we now live in him in the new, in Christ humanity. And it's this new life, this new creation, liberated from sin and death, that Paul says is from God. God's mission not only is described in terms of new creation in our text, but also with this key word of reconciliation. Back to verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling himself, the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Reconciliation means that hostility is removed in a relationship and replaced with peace, that that relationship might be restored. It is sin that actually divides and destroys communities and relationships, and sin that breaks the relationship between God and humanity as well. And through the death of Christ, who in verse 21 we read became sin for us, 
Jesus encountered the full weight of God's wrath against sin at the cross, and so there sin was defeated. The hostility between us and the living God on account of sin is dealt with decisively. And because of that, because of the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross, we are forgiven by God, who no longer counts our trespasses against us, as Paul writes in verse 19. And now, in the words of Romans 5.1, now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, as Paul hints here in verse 19, and there's so much more, and there's more explicit about elsewhere in places like Romans 8, Ephesians 1, this reconciliation, this bringing together into a relationship of peace and wholeness, that which was previously broken by sin, is not limited only to humanity, but again, in a way that pushes the limits of our minds and imaginations, extends to the entire cosmos. In Christ, Paul says in verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself. God's mission, motivated by his great love for the world that he made, is reconciling all things and renewing all things through Jesus, the one who died and was raised and who now reigns as Lord. This is the good news that we have to share with the world. And this is the mission of God, a mission that fulfills God's promise long ago to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, that through you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. His heart for his world is a worldwide family of blessing. And God is bringing that about through the renewal and reconciliation that he's doing in and through Christ and his death on the cross and the ongoing outworking of that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're here this morning and you are in Jesus, that you have repented of sin and trusted in him as Lord and Savior, then you are on the inside of that work of reconciliation and renewal. You have been made new, as Paul writes in verse 17, new creature or new creation. Or John, or Jesus says, you're born again. You're new. And you are on the inside. And then you become, as a new creature, a partner by the Holy Spirit's empowering with God in that ongoing mission that he is engaging in with the world. Be like those who, no doubt, in the early days of that tragic earthquake in Syria and Turkey that were rescued out of the rubble, somehow unharmed, would have immediately jumped into the rescue efforts to look for family and friends and be a part of that work. So too, you and I have been rescued out of the rubble. We've been brought out of death and into life and now alive we are on the mission with God of bringing greater renewal and reconciliation to those who don't yet know it. We jump in, and we are ambassadors, Paul writes, of the king, called to bear witness to his life-giving kingdom here on earth. So this brings us then to our third part, which is what does this mean for our lives? What does it mean to actually join in the mission of God as he has called us to do and sent us to be about. Three things. The first is speaking. Let's go back to verse 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then at the end, uh, sorry, that was verse 18. Then in verse, the end of verse 19, and entrusting to us the message or the word of reconciliation. 
We have a message. We have a word to share. Ambassadors have a message from the kingdom that they are sent to those realms to which they are sent. They bring a message. And for us, this message is, of course, the gospel of God. It is good news of the reconciliation and renewal that is centered on the cross and resurrection of Jesus, where the great enemies of life, sin, evil, and death are dealt with, and forgiveness of sins is offered, and new life is breaking out. In the earliest days of the church, as we read about this in the book of Acts, the mission of God was carried forward by the preaching of the apostles as they declared the gospel. And honestly, that hasn't changed today. We must speak to make God known, to call people to repentance and faith, to confront idolatry, to declare that Jesus and Jesus alone is the world's true Lord. He is above all. This doesn't just mean transmitting the truth loudly and obnoxiously without regard for our neighbors and their plight. This is a speaking, I would argue, that generally is embedded in relationships, grounded always in prayer, and motivated by genuine love for the people around us. Now, that is not a slight to street corner preaching by any means. If that's your calling, we celebrate that God. Many of you here, I know, have been come to Christ, come to faith through a ministry like that. Somebody just handed you a tract or, or you heard a word spoken on a street corner. And God uses those means. As Paul says, he just, he just celebrates that Christ is being proclaimed in whatever way possible in Philippians 1. But generally speaking, this proclamation is happening in the context of relationships. Which makes me pause for a moment. Let's do a little self-searching. Think about the inventory in your life of genuine relationships with your neighbors outside the church. Do you have friendships, acquaintances, genuine relationships that are not just one way, but two way with people in this city and in your neighborhood, at your workplace? Do you love them because they're image bearers of this, the God that you worship and serve? I would say that our greatest asset as the people of God in terms of mission are the number of genuine relationships that we have with those who don't yet know Jesus in our lives, where we're genuinely engaging with them, seeking them, loving them. And the great danger, of course, for all of us is that we can get so occupied within the body of the church that we lose touch with those unbelieving neighbors around us. So we speak in the context of relationships. It means being a friend who is ready to talk. The uh, American, Canadian, American writer, Nicole Cliff, um, when she wrote about her testimony in Christianity Today, her conversion, she became a Christian in July of 2015. She recounts being surprisingly moved by God when she read the obituary of Dallas Willard. She says she then began secretly, of course, to buy and read various Christian books, always crying and being moved. So what did she do next? Here's how she put it. So I emailed a friend who is a Christian, and I asked if we could talk about Jesus. 
I instantly regretted sending that email and, if humanly possible, would have clawed it back through the internet. Technology, having failed me, my message reached its recipient. She said she'd be very happy to talk with me about Jesus. You probably already know this, but Christians love talking about Jesus. <laughs> and then she goes on to describe their conversations. They wept together. Her friend sent her some more books, and soon thereafter, Nicole was baptized and joined a local church. I wonder, are you and I ready to be that friend? Are we one of those Christians who loves talking about Jesus? It's not easy, is it, in a world that frequently perceives Christianity as a failed message that often ridicules the Christian faith? We fear, don't we, that we won't have all the answers we fear that we'll look simplistic. We fear that we'll be misunderstood, perhaps. This actually, this call to speak, we've been entrusted with this message or word of reconciliation, is a call to trust. It's a call to trust in God, who's at work way beyond our spheres of ability or access. So often when we are called upon by God through the Spirit's leading to speak of Jesus, God has been at work in far greater ways than we could ever imagine. And we find that the heart has been prepared. And we never know what part of the journey that we play in someone's hearing of this gospel over and over again, perhaps. God is at work in ways, so we are called to trust in him. It's a call to courage. We know from the book of Acts that usually when the gospel is preached and Jesus is spoken of, that there are some who believe. There are some whose curiosity is touched and they have more questions. And there are some who ridicule and reject. And that response will be no different in the world today. It is a call to courage. It is a call to have the perspective that the most loving thing that we can do is to speak of our loving King, to share this life that we've been given, to share perhaps with a, a friend about how we have been found by God. We've been changed by God, and we're now being led by God's Spirit to carry on this work together. My prayer is that, like Paul, we as a body would not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So to, part to participate in this mission does necessitate speaking, opening our mouths. The second point is that to be engaged in Christian mission, speaking is not the whole of it. God's life-giving work actually necessitates that we embody the reality of his mission of reconciliation and renewal in our life together. And that means being a community of reconciliation, reflecting the reality of unity and diversity that produces maturity or harmony. We talked about this last week, so I'll be brief on this point, but just look at verse 16. Paul says it here, actually. He says, from now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. That's a significant statement. To regard one another according to the flesh is to focus in on those things that make us different and that in our culture divide us from one another. And Paul says, no, we are to see each other first and foremost as those who are alive in Christ, as new creatures, 
who are unified together, new creations who are one in our head, in Jesus. And we embrace the new reality of being one family under Jesus, our King. If people are going to take seriously our proclamation of the word of reconciliation, then ought we not to embody the reality of reconciliation in our life together, in the community that God has produced through the power of his spirit through the gospel? That's why last week we saw Paul urges the churches in Asia Minor in the letter we call Ephesians, he urges them to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's why Jesus praying that high priestly prayer in John 17, prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they also, uh, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is a missional issue. God's mission will advance as we live as the one holy and healthy community of love that we are called to be through God's word. We embody the message. And when we don't, that can cause the mission to hurt. I was sitting with a friend probably 15 years ago now. We had studied together in England and he had walked away from his faith in high school and was still one of the nicest uh, people I've ever known um, and still have great respect and admiration for him. And we were talking and I was sharing with him about uh, the work of the church that I was working in and just about the gospel itself. And he just looked at me and he said, Mark, what about all the division in the church, the 38,000 denominations in Protestantism. And he just kind of held up that ugly fact and sort of pushed it in my face, as if to say, you say this is supernatural and true, but the fruit that I see is not what you're speaking about. Michael Green, in his book, 30 Years That Changed the World, it's a book about the early church in the book of Acts, says this, quote, their fellowship was so vibrant their lifestyle so attractive, their warmth so great that it was infectious. If we want the gospel to spread in the community of which we are a part, we would be unwise to start with some evangelistic outreach. We would be much better employed in paying attention to the quality of our church life. That is going to be the magnet to draw others to Jesus, to the Jesus who has made us into his body." End quote. Who we are collectively, matters deeply to God, and it matters deeply to God's mission. And then thirdly, we engage in acts. We act. We do. We participate in God's mission as we become the new humanity. So verse 17 again, if anyone is in Christ, new creature, new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. In Christ, we are becoming restored image bearers of God, which means that we are to fulfill the role that was given to us in creation. Grace does not nullify nature, but rather restores it. That is, the renewing work of God does not abolish God's design for humanity in creation. Rather, the renewing work of God fulfills it. Hermann Bavink, the great Dutch theologian around the turn of the 20th century, said that the work of grace and redemption, quote, does not mean an annihilation, but a restoration of God's sin-disrupted work of creation. And that role that we were given in creation, you might remember from Genesis 1, was to be fruitful and multiply. 
and to exercise dominion, to toil in the garden as rulers under God, but over the garden, over the created order, to create and make culture for the good of all and for the glory of God in a manner that reflected the benevolent rule of our creator. That was what we were created to do as image bearers. In sin, that role was distorted and turned inward upon itself, but in the redemptive work of God in Christ, we are renewed to that position of humanity in creation in whom the power of sin has been broken by God's power and the mission of God then includes us faithfully reflecting the benevolent rule of God in our vocations, on our front lines. Our work matters to God and his mission. What we do every day matters to God and his mission. As we study and do research, practice medicine or law, engage in business, serve people coffee, raise children, whatever our front line is, the place where you spend the majority of your hours each week, we are called by God to pursue excellence in those environments to the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. And our work on those, in, on those frontiers is oriented not to ourselves to become something. We are everything that we need in Jesus, but it is oriented to others, to God for his glory and to our neighbor for their good. It is not primarily about us. And this means forsaking underhanded and dishonest ways. It means refusing to collude with the idols of our age, money, sex, power, fame. It means honoring God in the way that we work and in the work that we do. And as we live out this role as stewards under God's benevolent authority, we bear prophetic witness to the renewing work of God in Christ. In and through our own lives, we bring Christ's authority, his benevolent life-giving authority into every lab, every office, every classroom, every home, every neighborhood to which God has called us. These places obviously belong to him anyway. They're already his. But as we have opportunity to make his claim known through our work and attitude and our partnership with others, we're making, in a sense, a prophetic statement about what is truly real, that this is God's realm. I was told last year that a question that is asked of uh, the fellows at Redeemer in New York City, at their fellows program, where they're looking at faith and work, is, is this question. It's a great question. What does it look like to move your sector 10% closer to a kingdom vision? Maybe your sector is finance, or medicine, or academia, or real estate, or law, or the service industry. What does it look like just to move 10% closer to a kingdom vision? This kind of thinking and living will have a, a leavening impact on the world around us. Not one to be overstated. That can be overstated at times. But nonetheless, one that is there that is bearing witness to the truth and to what the world will one day become when Jesus returns and his kingdom is consummated. Also as renewed image bearers, new creations, being a part of the mission of God under this heading of doing also includes reflecting God's heart for justice and mercy in the midst of a world of brokenness, wickedness, and injustice. This has always been God's heart for his people and for all humanity. It's worthy of a lot more attention than it can be given here this morning, but it is essential. The people of, of God in this world of sin and brokenness advance the mission of God as we pursue justice for all. 
as we care for the poor, as we defend the vulnerable, as we confront oppressors and powers that exploit. God's coming kingdom will be just as it is celebrated in Psalm 96, for example. And we, as we are able to right wrongs in the present, we anticipate and embody that future and we call people to it. To say that we are a people who are called to justice, let me be very clear, is not a partisan statement. It is a biblical exhortation and command. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice or to act justly? The translation could go either way. To love kindness, chesed, mercy, steadfast love, and to walk humbly or circumspectly with your God. This work of doing justice in the world gives integrity to our proclamation and to our worship and to our communal life together. God's redemptive work does indeed impact social, political, and economic spheres. And we are to care about this too as we scatter throughout the world and throughout the city in Jesus' name. Our participation in God's mission must be holistic because God's mission of reconciliation and renewal is. Yes, proclamation is essential, and so is a unified and holy church and faithfulness in our vocations and pursuing justice and mercy. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. I borrow that from the wedding liturgy. And this mission, while it entails embracing the fullness of life, is, of course, costly. Look with me at the text again, a little beyond where we read in chapter 6, verse 4. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, Paul writes, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. This is a costly mission. It was costly for the Apostle Paul. It was costly for his Lord. And I would just simply ask, when is taking up our cross not costly? There is a cost to stepping in to this mission. By the way, there is a cost to not stepping in to this mission as well. Many of you might remember that poignant scene at the end of Steven Spielberg's film Schindler's List, when Oscar Schindler is leaving the factory to not be caught by the Soviets who are getting close and to try to go and find the Americans on the other front. And he has that moment of having these 1,100 people around him that he's essentially rescued from death, these, these Jewish people that he as a Nazi was supposed to hate, he preserved their lives, and he says, could it not have just been one more? This pen, this car. The cost of not engaging in the mission of God is far greater than we ever like to think about. But we are moved, 
Why would we want to step into this costly work? Why would we want to take up our cross? Why would we want to be deployed on this mission? Well, I would submit to you that Paul gives us the answer at the opening of our text in verse 14 as we draw to a close. For the love of Christ, for the love of Christ controls or compels us, which he goes on to say specifically in verse 15, which means that those of us who live no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who for our sakes died and was raised. It is the love of Christ that controls and compels us. It's the love of Christ for you and me that we've experienced in a real and genuine and personal way that's transformed our lives from the inside out. It's the love of Christ that causes us to step in, to take up our cross voluntarily and willingly and gladly, not marked by a bitterness and a despair, but marked by a liveliness and energy and a joy that says this is the greatest adventure that we could ever participate in in the world. And we are not outsiders looking on. We are in Insiders fully engaged and invited by God to take up our cross with Jesus in this great work of renewal and reconciliation around the world. Our lives, church, are not boring. Your life, whatever, however mundane it feels, however just minuscule and unimportant it may feel to you or to the world around you, you are on the greatest mission that could ever be known. You are involved in the greatest adventure that has ever been unleashed. And guess what? You know the end, and it works out great. We know that Jesus is coming back to make all things new, and he's asking you and me to step with him into this work. There is only one path to life, and it is the path of death. It is the path of love. It is the path of the cross. And we take up this path because Christ took it up as our king for us. He died for us, for you and for me to bring us into this life, into this renewal, into this kingdom, to make us ambassadors of the king, and to employ us and deploy us in this great work that he's called us to. Your neighbors need you to be Jesus. They need you to be alive in this world. I mean, I say, God doesn't need us, really. He can do all this without us, and often he does. So I don't want to overplay that. But he does call us to this great work together. And it is his love as Paul says, that compels or controls us. None of us will take this up perfectly. And I don't know, maybe you walked in here and you didn't want a resounding exhortation to get in, in order and start marching. Perhaps some of you just needed to be reminded that the love of Christ is for you today. And it, it is. But he loves you so much that he's calling you and inviting you into true life, which is to take up your cross with him and die which is to take up the way of love and to be engaged on this mission for his great glory and for the good of your neighbor and to be quite honest, for your own life and for mine to flower into fullness. The way that happens is by taking up this mission. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful invitation to be ambassadors of Christ. You've entrusted us with this amazing good news. Lord, we fall woefully short. Often we are so tangled up in and embedded in the idols of our day. 
that our light shines very little. And we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us, that you would rescue us from the selfishness that defines sinfulness. Lord, and that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to this mission defined by love. We pray for an outpouring of your Spirit upon your people. God, we pray for specific steps to take, even this week. And we ask that you would receive glory, honor, and praise. And that you would be patient with us as we seek to be faithful. Jesus, thank you for your words after your resurrection. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.